Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Our goal this morning is uh, to complete our study of chapter 9. We've been in it for a few uh, weeks now. And as we hit around verse 30, we've entered into sort of this section that really does go together. We just didn't have time to, to complete it all together. Um, from about verse 31 to the end of the chapter. And as I said earlier, uh, we've entitled the sermon this idea of rethinking greatness. Because if you go back and you look at verse 34, notice what it says there. We studied this last week. And it said, Jesus had asked them this question, what were you talking about? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now some of the older translations translate that slightly differently, and instead it says as to who should be the greatest. The idea there being they were arguing about in the future which of us will be the greatest. Now, remember the context of this conversation, because in Mark 9.31, just three verses before that, they said Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And then three verses later, they're discussing who's going to be his replacement. Who should be his replacement? Who's the greatest? I remember a number of years ago when I first started working as a school teacher, professional working. And uh, a buddy of mine one day uh, in the springtime, he told me that he wouldn't be coming back the next year. That he wasn't rehired to come back the next year. And I was surprised. I was shocked. Oh my goodness, that's terrible. Would you like to know my first question? Who's getting your room? was my first question. How awful! What a terrible thing of a good friend who essentially got fired, and my first concern is who gets the good room uh, here. Disciples are kind of there. You're looking at me like you've never done anything like that, or at least thought it. You probably have. I didn't have the couth at the time to not say it out loud, um, but I went in the next day to my boss and asked for his room, and it was a good room, uh, as you can imagine. Anyway, that being said, that's what they're doing. They're discussing amongst themselves who should be the greatest. And in the context of Jesus just saying, I'm going to die, what a horrible conversation for them to um, have. No wonder they kept silent about it. And Jesus, very gently, I I see here, he said in verse 33, we see that he says, he just asked the question, "What, what is it you were discussing along the way? And it's going to create an opportunity for him to do a teaching on what true greatness actually is with these disciples um, here which he'll go on to do. As I mentioned, he launches into it. Last week when we were together, uh, we looked at a couple of the uh, characteristics, if you will, of greatness. Today we're going to look at three additional ones here. But in, I want to put it in sort of this context of things. How does our world define greatness? And what were these disciples thinking about when they thought about they would get to be the one in charge? Well, the one in charge, or greatness, if you will, is never having to be told that you're wrong. All right, that's greatness. Nobody can tell me that I'm wrong. They have to adjust that and clean up after the things I've said. That's what greatness is in the world's mind. In the world's mind, greatness is having everyone else at your beck and call. And so when you need something, you just snap your fingers and they come. And they take care of it. In the world's mind, greatness is measured by the number of people that you can order around and dictate instructions to. And Jesus is going to turn that thinking completely on its head, as we've already begun Uh, to look at. And so the first thing that we learned last week when we were together was this idea that great people, great disciples in particular, they treat all people equally. And so that's the scenario involving a young child. Well, what can a child add to your life? 
If you're nice to a child, can they pay you back by getting you a job? Or can they pay you back by doing something for you? No, they're takers, typically. And so uh, here Jesus said, treat the, the young child just like you're treating me. And so a truly great disciples, they treat all people equally. A rich person, no differently than a poor person. An influential person or a successful person, no different from a person with less capabilities or less influence here. And ultimately, they treat each person as if it were the Lord himself. Would that change the way you treat people? Probably. Probably? <laughs> Absolutely. Imagine, you know, if the Lord asked for a favor, you'd drop everything and you would do it. And if someone you don't really, maybe you have some disdain for, or you don't really care about, they ask for the same favor. Ooh, what? What? And then you go away, and you get out of the room there, so you don't have to help them. Jesus says this in Matthew 25, The king will answer them on that day, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Truly great disciples treat all people equally. Second point that Jesus made about true greatness in the kingdom of God it came in response to John the Apostle's confession. And John the Apostle said, you just told us to treat everybody well. Uh, Lord, I, I have to confess, we treated a guy poorly. And he was healing people in your name, delivering them from demons. We told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. And Jesus, he launches in. We're not going to go into it because we did it already. But he says to him, for the one who is uh, not against us is for us. And Jesus goes in there and he, he teaches his disciples Treat people with grace. Be kind to people. The, the word I used last week was magnanimous, and I looked it up like four times. Uh, sometimes when I'm writing, words just sort of come to me, and then I'm like, I don't even really know what that word means. You know? And so then I went back and I looked it up, and I kept forgetting, and I kept looking it up again. It essentially means be kind. It means to be generous. It, and it's this. It's giving people the benefit of the doubt. Not everybody's out to get you, even if they do something that's wrong against you. That doesn't necessarily mean they're out to get you. And so you sort of, you give people the benefit of the doubt until they prove otherwise that they don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. And you kind of have to be a little watchful with that individual. There are all the ideas there of being magnanimous toward others. And so that was the second idea. Third point was sort of a bonus point. It was a second and a half point, if you will. And it comes from Mark 9.41. He says, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And the point that we took away from that is when you serve other people, serve as unto serving the Lord. Because even the smallest deeds of kindness that you do toward another person, the Lord takes notice of those things. Amen? All right, let's pick up in our passage today, starting in verse 42. It says, I'm going to drink for this long one. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
Now, you'll notice in your Bibles, back in verse 36, Jesus had just picked up a child and taken that child and put it, the child on his lap, and then he was going to go into a teaching using the child as sort of this picture of greatness. Most of us, we wouldn't think of a child as being great. And so he sits his child down. We saw it there in 36. He says, whoever receives such a one in 37, uh, in my name receives me, whoever receives me, the one who sent me. And then John interrupts, and he asks this question about this guy that was delivering people of demons. Here we are now back in verse 42, and Jesus is going back to the, the teaching that he put the child on his lap for. And so he says, whoever calls is one of these little ones, and I can picture him, you know, he's holding his kid, he's on his lap, he maybe he's got his, his arms around the kid's belly area there, and he kind of looks down at the kid as he says these words, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, we don't do a lot with millstones here in the United States or in Ewing, New Jersey, or wherever it is that you live in this area here. But in the Bible, there were basically two types of millstones. One was a small little handheld type of stone, rock of some sorts, and you would use it, the homemaker would use it for family meals and cooking. And so they'd pull up on the kitchen counter and they would do what they had to do with this small little handheld stone. The second millstone that's in, used in the Bible is the one that is used here. And this was anywhere from a, it was round typically, it was anywhere from three to six feet, sort of in height and width and all of that. And it was turned typically by an animal or a donkey, which is an animal, to press and grind the grain in the mill. And so there was oftentimes a hole in the center, much like a tire, and a pole would go through it that would be connect, connected to the animal, and the animal would just walk in a circle of some sorts and grind the grain there in the mill. That's the word that is used when Jesus says it would be better for that person if a great millstone was used. He's not talking about the small little kitchen stone. He's talking about this big three to six foot stone. When you read about the, uh, the burial of Jesus, and it talks about how a large stone was rolled in place. That's the kind of stone that we're talking about. All right? It could be as much as five or six feet high uh, in um, height. There you go. How's that? And Jesus says, for the one who leads a little one away, it would be better for that person to have a, that kind of a stone tied around their neck and then thrown uh, into the sea. And the disciples almost certainly knew exactly what that meant, because about four or five years before Jesus came on the scene and done his, done his teaching, there was some insurrectionist up in the uh, area of the Galilee, and the way the Romans dealt with them, they tied millstones around them and tossed them into the sea. And so they lived up in that Galilee region. At the very least, they heard about it, if they didn't actually see this particular event happen. It was a means of execution that was used here. And as Jesus is sitting there with this disciple, holding him on his lap, if Jesus had a smile on his face before, I imagine the smile faded away as he began to say these particular words. Because Jesus is going to launch into a discussion, if you will, on judgment. If you have a millstone cast around your neck and you're thrown into the sea, it means certain death. Don't forget the, the Sea of Galilee at some points is about 150 feet deep. You know, so we're not just talking like it's a six-foot pond or something like that. It's 150 feet deep. And it meant certain death. And Jesus here, as he speaks about judgment, does it surprise you a little bit to hear Jesus speaking about judgment? Some of you, maybe? A lot of times we think of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. 
Jesus, oh, you know, I, Paul, he kind of gets out there, but I just like to think about Jesus. Jesus is nice, Jesus is sweet, Jesus says lovely things, and so on. These are some of the strongest words in the Bible regarding judgment. And they come from the Lord Jesus. He says, if anyone leads one, leads one of these little ones astray, you know, I, I think our entertainment industry in our nation should consider these words very carefully. I think some of America's educational system should consider these words very carefully. Many of America's universities should consider these words very carefully. The Lord takes notice of those that cause one of these little ones to sin. And he warns that the consequences of doing so are quite severe. Now, there is a takeaway from this, a positive takeaway, if you will. I'm not implying we ignore the one or another, but there's a positive takeaway from this. It's a pretty good bet if the Lord takes notice of those that lead little ones astray, that the Lord takes notice of those that lead little ones to him as well. And so those of you that are involved with our children's ministry, those of you that are involved in our youth ministry, the Lord sees and he takes notice. And sometimes you're back there and you're wondering, what am I doing this for? I was created for so much greater than little children or something like that. The Lord sees and he takes notice and he's blessed by it. And so the implications of verse 41, there's a crossover to cause a little one to go astray, he sees, but also to help a little one, he sees as well. Now, last week when we were together, Jesus pointed to that little child sitting on his lap and he said, whoever gives a cup of cold water to that little kid, I take notice of it. Now, we made the application. Jesus wasn't saying you just have to be nice to little kids. And you can be mean to old people or something like that. It applies to everyone. He sees the smallest acts of kindness. Even so here, Jesus isn't just speaking about leading little kids astray. Jesus is not saying, look, don't lead children astray, but once they hit adulthood, do whatever you want to do. You know, I don't really care about that. He cares about all of these things. And so then, in addition to that literal interpretation about caring for little ones and pouring into the lives of little ones so that they may come to know the Lord at a young age, we can also make application toward the need not to hinder those little ones in the faith, those young believers in the faith that are just coming to understand the things of God. We've been talking about this idea of what it means to be a great disciple. Here's a third example that I would suggest to you. That comes from the Lord in my understanding here, that a truly great disciple remains ever aware of those that are weaker in the faith. They remain ever aware of those that are weaker in the faith that are around them, and they take special care not to live or not to act in such a way that's going to hinder that young believer's walk in the Lord. That's a lot of words I know. All right, But they take notice that there's younger believers that are watching me that are observing me, and they don't do anything that's going to hinder that younger believer's walk in the Lord. Because sometimes a more mature believer might be able to exercise certain liberties, while those same liberties might destroy a brand new believer. Are you with me? Certain times there are certain liberties that an older believer can exercise, and it has no real impact on their hearts But there's a young believer that God is working on and he's doing a work and he said, no, I don't want you near it. And they see the older believer's liberty and they begin to think, well, this is okay. So-and-so does it. The mature, great disciple recognizes the impact their decisions might have on those young believers. 
and they willingly put those things aside. They don't flaunt their liberty if it means it's negatively going to impact somebody else. Because it's possible to stumble a fellow believer and even cause long-term spiritual damage even if you had no intention to do so at all. And the great disciple in Christ knows that. And they recognize that and they live their life accordingly. And so the Lord's servant then must ever consider what effect their words, their actions, are going to have on other people. Now some of you say, well, that's not fair. None of you. I mean, people that listen to the tape. They're going to say, that's not fair. Why should I have to worry about some other guy? Can you hear that? Can you hear yourself saying that? None of you? Because I can hear myself saying that. You know what? I don't worry about what other people, I'm going to do what I want to do. Or whatever, or somebody like that. So some of us, we might think that. I shouldn't have to worry about what other people think and how they're going to respond to my actions. Well, the reality is great disciples do worry about those things. And they become a servant to everyone else. Remember what Jesus said, Mark 10.45. We'll get to it eventually uh, in our study of this book. But he said this, even the Son of Man. I think we quoted this like ten times this Bible study so far during this uh, series of studies. Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And truly great disciples like Christ, they consider others and the impact on others their decisions will make. And they take them into consideration. Continuing on, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. The unquenchable fire. And I've read this already. He goes on, he talks about if your foot causes you to sin or if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off and gouge it out. Serious words, certainly from the Lord. And Jesus' point, we'll talk about it, but Jesus' point is in addressing the seriousness of dealing with sin in our own lives and those things that might cause us to sin. And so he says again in verse 43, if it's your hand causing you to sin, cut it off. Down to 45, if it's your foot, cut it off. 47, if it's your eye, then tear it out. Because essentially what Jesus is saying is this, look, it's better for you to be crippled or lame or blinded in this life than to go to hell with your full faculties, is what Jesus is saying here. Now some that have just sort of a a real basic knowledge of the scriptures, they're really surprised, as I said earlier, to see that Jesus spoke about hell in this way. You need to know, as you study through the scriptures, and the Gospels in particular, and then the book of Acts, where they're doing teachings on what Jesus taught, and so on, and the, the epistles, that Jesus believed in a literal place called hell, and he spoke about it. It's interesting, if you go back and you do a word search in your Bible, you take a concordance, a Strong's or something like that, and you go back and you do a word search, what you will discover is Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And of all those in the Bible that taught, like so Moses and folks in the Old Testament and so on, of all those in the Bible that taught, Jesus had more to say about hell than any other teacher. Now I do want to point something out uh, A fellow named R. Allen Cole pointed this out, and I thought it was a great point. As I went back and I contemplated the idea, I said, you know, I think you're right. And Cole said this. He said, no man ever spoke stronger words about hell than the loving Son of God. But his words on the topic were addressed either to his disciples, as here, or to professed religious leaders like the Pharisees and the scribes, as in the Matthew passage that he quotes. 
We never hear of him expounding on this topic to publicans and sinners. The Lord spoke of hell to profess saints and of heaven to acknowledge sinners. And Cole points out we often reverse the process. We often think, oh, there's a bunch of sinners here today. You know, I'm at such and such a place. I'm going to give a fire and brimstone sermon to them. And we pour out the hell on the clear sinners. And for saints, we just talk about heaven. Cole points out Jesus did it almost the exact opposite. Now, many have no trouble believing Jesus' words about heaven. Oh, I just love to think of Jesus. He talks about heaven. I can't wait one day to get there and be with him. But when it comes to hell, it becomes very interesting. Suddenly then, Jesus is speaking figuratively. Suddenly then, what Jesus did was he adopted the common thinking of the day so that he could kind of relate with his hearers, but in reality, Jesus didn't really believe in hell. Or they come up with some other theory to explain away. So it's fascinating. Totally by, yep, Jesus, heaven, amen, I'm with you. Hell, well, what Jesus meant was these particular things here. Jesus speaks of hell in a literal, as a literal, an eternal place for judgment. And then he adds this phrase where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so there are some pseudo-Christian movements, uh, some that cross over into what we would define as a cult, others that are sort of on the edge. And sometimes in the history of those movements, they've been cults and then they're not cults all on how they respond to who Jesus is, uh, and so on. But there are some that teach this idea of annihilationism, that no one suffers for all eternity apart from God, but eventually the body, the soul, is destroyed, and they just cease from existing. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches this idea of hell as a literal and an eternal place. Now, look at your Bibles kind of closely here, if you have it. Hopefully you do. If you are reading some, of, some versions, particularly the ESV, which is what we've been putting up on the screen and we make available in some of the seats there in front of you or near you, what you'll notice is that in the ESV, there's no verse 44 and there's no verse 46. And so you, oh. so you go down and you kind of look and it goes right from 43 to 45 and it goes right from 45 uh, to 47 there. Now, there, the verses... Those verses, 44 and 46, are found in some ancient manuscripts, and they're not found in others. Now, I, I think we've talked about this before, but in case you're just popping in here, the original documents that Mark wrote, Matthew wrote, Paul wrote, and others wrote, we don't have. We have copies of those documents dating back to the first century. Those are called manuscripts. And as you can imagine, there were multiple copies made of those works because people are like, this Ephesians book that Paul wrote is good. And so people jotted down copies of those particular things. We have those manuscripts. You can go back and you can do your studies as to the authority of those manuscripts and can we really trust them and all those sorts of things. Plenty of scholars have already dug into them. If you trust something like Shakespeare, you can trust your Bible far more all right, because of the manuscript evidence that is there. But in instances, it's something like 98.6%, the manuscripts agree. But in the 1.4%, there are times where things are like, well, I don't know about that. In some of our versions, they're based on manuscripts that say, you know, I'm not really sure about verse 44. I'm not really sure about verse 46. And in your versions, those verses will be skipped. 
You'll probably have a little letter, a little subscript there of sorts. At the bottom of your page, it'll say, some manuscripts include verse 44. Here's what it says. All right? Other versions, like the King James Version, the New King James Version, they include it right in the manuscript. And so you'll read 43, 44, 45, 46, and on to 47. Here's the thing I think is interesting about this. Lest you think, well, I don't know if I can believe the Bible. What's interesting, you know what 44 and 46 says? Look at verse 48. It's word for word what verse 48 says. And so what, what is done is, the first one says, look, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And then it includes those words there, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And some manuscripts include those words, where the worm does not die and the, foot is not, or the uh, fire is not quenched. And then verse 47, about the eye, and then the words in 48. And so the words, the message is included in this paragraph, whether or not your Bible includes verse 44 or 46 or not. Are you with me on that? Yeah. All right, doesn't shake you too much or anything like that? It shouldn't. Okay, don't allow it to. And, and if it does concern you a bit, go back and look for uh, the proofs for the manuscripts that we have. You can dig into it. You can study it. And, and I am quite confident you'll walk away confident yourself. Anyway, jumping back into our passage... Jesus here is talking about hell. And the word Jesus uses, you can look at the Greek word there, it's the word Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was a literal place in Jerusalem. It was a part of, it was kind of just outside of Jerusalem there, right on the edge of Jerusalem. And the word Gehenna, it, it comes from a Greek word. It's our English pronunciation of that Greek word, which was sort of a uh, transliteration of the Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word literally meant the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom is the location of what later on would be called Gehenna. Uh, and the Valley of Hinnom has a history in the Old Testament. Sadly, the Valley of Hinnom, just literally feet away from the Temple Mount area, sadly, the Valley of Hinnom became the place where the children of Israel joined in the worship of the foreign gods of some of the uh, foreign people that came into the land. In particular, it was the place where they worshipped the god Molech. Now, many of you are familiar that the worship of the god Molech, uh, to appease the god Molech, was to offer your baby as a human sacrifice. And the children of Israel participated in the worship of Molech right there in the Valley of Hinnom at the feet of the Temple Mount. We have a couple of examples. Second Chronicles chapter 28 talks about King Ahaz, and it says, Now when Ahaz was 20 years old, when he began to reign, he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Remember, the nation had split. Ahaz was the king of Judah. The northern kingdom was the king of Israel, the nation of Israel. It said he even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he burned his sons as an offering. Human sacrifice there at the foot of the Temple Mount. We read a little bit later in the book of 1 Chronicles about a fellow named Manasseh. It says Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out of Israel... And verse 6, and he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and so on and so forth. 
the Valley of Hinnom has a, a bad history. Now, a good king comes on the scene, a fellow by the name of Josiah. I love Josiah. He's a hero of the Old Testament. And Josiah takes over from one of these bad kings of Judah, and he decides to make reformation in the land of Israel, in the land of Judah in particular, down there by Jerusalem. One of the reformations that he made was to destroy all of the high places, all of the, the altars to the foreign gods and the poles, the ashram poles, and so on and so forth. And he took this valley of Hinnom, and rather than it being a place of worship to these false gods, he instead turned it into a garbage heap. It was a, he said it was a desecrated place, and there's nothing that can bring it back, if you will, from that desecration. This is going to become Jerusalem's garbage heap. And there they would begin to put all of the garbage, they would lit the fires to consume the garbage. Pretty soon they would use the place as a location for the carcasses of dead animals and things like that. And then before long, the, the worms and the rats and all of those things began to move into that place. And there was a perpetual burning fire that was unquenchable where the worm dieth not. That's Gehenna. And so when Jesus is talking here and he mentions that it's better to be without an eye than to be thrown into Gehenna, immediately in their minds, they have a picture of what Jesus is talking about here. And it's an immediately recognizable picture. What Jesus is saying is that you need to avoid that place at all cost. Would it be okay to have sort of everything in this world, the two, your two eyes and so on and so forth, and then spend the rest of your eternity in those fires? The people would say, of course not. It's not worth it. And so Jesus says, look, if your hand causes you to sin, get rid of it. If your foot causes you to sin, get rid of it. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, sadly, in the history of the church, some have taken these words literally. And so they have cut off their hand. They've gouged out their eye. They've whipped themselves with whips in order to eradicate sin from their lives. The problem is, Jesus never really meant for that aspect of this saying to be taken literally. What Jesus was doing is he was using a very graphic Eastern way of speaking to describe, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. Because you cut your hand off, you know what your other hand's going to do? It's going to try and steal the very same thing. And you cut your eye out, you cut both of your eyes out. You know what your mind's eye is going to do? It's going to think about those things. It's not a matter of the hand or the foot or the, the eye or any other part of your body. It's a matter of the heart. And so Jesus is not talking about literally cutting off your hand or literally cutting off your foot. He's talking about doing whatever it takes to deal with that sin problem in your life. He is, in so many words, he's restating what he said a chapter or so ago. You remember back in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus called the crowd together and he said, look, if anyone who comes after me would come after me, they have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And then he said this, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will find it or will save it. It's the same idea. Keep yourself from sin. Reaching the goal is worth any sacrifice and no price is too great, Jesus is saying here. Now, does Jesus have in mind something when he says the hand? He might. Maybe that's our deeds, the foot, where we go, the eye, the things we uh, long for, think about, meditate on. Perhaps he does here. Because we do know that each of those areas 
are potential danger spots in our walk uh, with the Lord, aren't they? They're potentially things that we can give ourselves to and find ourselves in an area of sin. And so Jesus addresses those particular areas. But ultimately, here's your takeaway. Jesus is saying it's worth being ruthless with yourself regarding these things, regarding potential areas of sin. I find this really interesting because just earlier, as I opened today, I reminded you of something we looked at last time we were together, and that is that a truly great disciple is kind and gracious and magnanimous toward others regarding their sin, but at the same time, they are just the opposite toward their own sin. Isn't that interesting? Thank you, Melissa. Okay. We oftentimes do it the exact opposite. I can't believe you did that to me, and you did this to me, and you did that to me. Well, what about you? Haven't you ever done it? Well, that's not the point. You see, I have a reason why I did what I did, and we're mad at you for sinning, but we excuse ourselves for sinning. Jesus takes the exact opposite approach. You're kind and gracious toward others who sin against you, but you're ruthless with yourself, and you root it out of your own life if need be. And so we have now this fourth mark of a truly great disciple, and that is this. Deal radically with whatever it is in your life that might be hindering your walk with the Lord. Nobody, amen? That feels great, doesn't it? Oh, I can't wait to get out of here and... No! This is uncomfortable. I don't want to deal radically. Can't I just sort of gradually, Lord, deal with these things and... You know, here and there, we'll get around to certain things. A truly great disciple deals radically. You remember the movie Fireproof? I know a lot of you have seen the movie Fireproof. It was pretty popular a number of years ago. And Fireproof, it's, among other things, it's a story of this particular fellow. He has a problem with pornography on his computer. And he's trying to deal with this problem. He's trying to grow in this particular area. And yet there's that computer just sitting right over there. And so he gets up and he walks to the other side of the room. But there's that computer. And it's just calling to him. And it's calling to him. And finally he gets up and you're like, oh no, he's going to fall. And he goes over to the computer and he unplugs the computer. And he goes out into his backyard and he slams it down on the ground and begins to beat it with a baseball bat. And we look at that and we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's crazy. That's so extreme. But he dealt with the pornography problem, didn't he? In that instance there. That's so crazy, that's so extreme. That's the exact sort of radical decision-making that Jesus is speaking of. Now, we live in a world where you, you need access to the Internet, pretty much, don't you? At some point in time or another, you need access to the Internet. I have to bring this stuff into my house. And so we say, it's just kind of the way it is. Well, there are radical steps you can take. And so you get your, uh, your filters and all those kinds of things. But the reality is, if you're savvy, you can get around those filters. And you know you can. And so then you're, you're going to take the radical step. I'm getting rid of the internet. And I'm going to get a flip phone, like Kevin Tallickson has. All right? And I'm going to still have my flip phone, or whatever it may be. I think you've, uh, you, he has an iPhone now. And I, she does. And you're awesome. We love you. And well, what about the internet? What about checking your email? Well, you know, the library offers it for free. And it's right there in the middle of the thing, and you're probably not going to go on and get pornography right there in the middle of the library. Yeah, but then I've got to drive there, and that's going to take time. And, that, you know, and people are going to say, how come you don't have it at your house? And then I'm going to feel silly. 
It's a radical step to do whatever it takes to deal with the potentiality of sin in your life. And that's not even that radical. Driving to the library and looking at free internet. <laughs> but do whatever it takes to root it out of your life because that's what truly great disciples will do. And so, again, we ask the question, do you want to be a truly great disciple? Is it okay to desire to be a truly great disciple? I think it is. I hope every one of us desires when we get to heaven to hear, great job. Man, you're the best. I love you. From the Lord or something to that effect or whatever here. Of course it's a good desire. Well, if it's your desire, then take the necessary radical steps to root out sin from your life. Let's go on. A couple more verses. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? That's a lot of salt words. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now I'll suggest to you, I think these are two separate sayings, not one long paragraph, but they're two separate sayings that both have this idea of salt that are in them, maybe trying to communicate two different ideas. The first one here, it says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now the phrase salted with fire, it's speaking of what we might call sacrificial language. It's, it's an Old Testament idea. In Leviticus chapter 2, we read this. It says, you shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. And you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your offering. With all your offerings, you shall uh, offer it with salt. And so the Old Testament offering, it would be salted with this idea of salt. Jesus here is declaring you are the offering. So in this case, you're not the salt. In another place, it says you're the salt of the earth. Okay, That doesn't mean you're always the salt. In this case, you're the offering on which the salt is applied. Jesus is saying every follower of Jesus is to be an offering for God, is to be a sacrifice unto the Lord and placed into the fire. You know, remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 12? I kind of forget right now, but it says, consider your bodies a living sacrifice. Here he, he says every follower of Jesus Christ is to be a sacrifice of God. And where does the sacrifice go? The sacrifice goes into the fire. Now we hear that and we say, I don't want to go in the fire. I don't like the fire. Let me just say this as nicely as possible. The fire is good. You do want to go into the fire. The fire is a good place to be. The fire, I know, the fire is the place where purification happens. The fire is the place where the dross is burned away. So when you think of a piece of gold, they would, they would take a, a metal pan of sorts, and they would put the gold inside of it. And the bottom of the pan was sort of like a, a netting, almost like a screen of sorts. And they would place it there uh, and then drop it down sort of into this uh, fiery burning pot of some sorts, if you want to think of it that way. And what would rise to the top, the dross then are the imperfections. The fire actually burns away the imperfections. So here in our passage where it talks about being salted with fire, that's sacrificial language. It goes back to, actually to Leviticus chapter 2, where we read, it says that you shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. So that Old Testament offering would be salted with salt. What Jesus is saying is you're that offering. And now in this case, you're not the salt, you're the offering on which the salt is applied. Jesus is saying every follower of his is to be a sacrifice for God and placed into the fire. Now, of course, our natural inclination is to say, I don't want to go in the fire. 
The reality, however, is that the fire is good. The fire is the place of purification. The fire is the place where the imperfections are burned away. God brings into the life of his children chastening fires for their good. And while a person can take steps to avoid those times of chastening, the reality is the fire is the place of growth. The person that takes steps to avoid the chastening fires has taken steps that will cause them to miss the good work that God seeks to accomplish through the use of those chastening fires. The disciple of Christ is going to submit themselves to those fires. Now, the second phrase Jesus presents to us in this, these verses is verse 50, in which it says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Now, I'll remind you, you might know this, but in the ancient world, salt had two primary purposes, which were to add flavor and to preserve food. If salt is no longer accomplishing either of those two purposes, then that salt has become just uh, salt just in name only. In another place, Jesus declared that the believer is to be the salt of the earth. The Christian is to be both the preservative and to add flavor to the world around them. And if the Christian is not accomplishing that purpose, then there really is no reason for them to be in that environment any longer. Here are some questions that I think will help you apply this verse to more this morning. This verse this morning that will help you apply it tomorrow and the next day and this whole week. Number one, here's the question. If your environment, is it better because you're in it? Is your home life better because you're in it? Your place of business? Is your dorm room or the floor that you live on better because you're there? Well, the reality is they should be. The believer is to be the salt of the earth. And as such, God's expectation is that they will exert a healthful, purifying influence on those they come in contact with. The point then of verses 49 to 50 seem to picture the believer's life as a sacrifice unto the Lord, which, if a person fails to deal drastically with sinful desires, is going to result in a savorless, worthless, and even a pointless Christian walk. And so then, with that, we bring to a close our study of rethinking greatness. Based upon Jesus' teaching in response to his, the argument his disciples were having, about which of them was the greatest. The truly great disciple is going to, one, treat everyone equally. They're going to be as magnanimous as possible. They're going to handle others with the sensitivity to the other person's needs. But at the same time, they're going to deal with themselves radically. And finally, a truly great disciple is going to enhance and preserve the environment in which they find themselves, not the other way around. Amen? May each of us be that sort of disciple. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.